Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com.au. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. In this episode, we spoke with Daryl Guppy. Daryl is the founder of guppytraders.com, commentator for CNBC Asia, author of multiple books on trading, including share trading, bear trading, and trading Asian shares. He is undoubtedly one of the most original and astute Australian commentators from the early days of the industry, and with that comes a wealth of market experience, particularly as a private trader as well. In this episode, we covered a lot, including China and his experience in dealing with the country, particularly as a consultant and helping companies broaden their market share in China, how he got into financial markets, technical charting and fundamental analysis, how guppytraders.com was started, and of course, our perception of China and the trade wars. If you like the episode, leave a rating on your podcast app or share with your friends by taking a screenshot and posting on your Instagram story. Just tag at GoMarkets to show us that you're interested. Uh, show notes and all previous guests are at GoMarkets.com slash podcast. With that being said, let's get into this episode with Daryl Guppy. Daryl, thanks for joining. How are you? Thank you for the invitation. We are just having a good old chat about... Uh, green tea, jasmine teas and whatnot as we're doing our sound check and it just had me thinking immediately about uh, your involvement in China. I, I guess one of the things I was curious about in your early career is what, were, what was the first trip you made to China? First trip I made to China was was accidental. I was doing some work for Metastock in Hong Kong and took the opportunity to go across the border and uh, have a look at China. That was quite a number of years ago before the 1997 <laughs> handover. Okay. What was China like back then in comparison to now? Well, it was interesting. You've got two different approaches uh, that you can take to infrastructure. You can take the Australian approach, which is where you build infrastructure after you actually need it, which is why we've got all sorts of problems, <laughs> or you can build infrastructure in advance, I can remember driving or being driven because I think it was a guided tour uh, from Shenzhen to uh, to Guangzhou, and it was a multi-lane freeway, as would now be described as a freeway to nowhere. Um, and on the side, there was nothing but rice paddies and open fields and so on. Take the same trip now from Shenzhen to Guangzhou, and it's just pure industrial business centres all the way along that freeway. That infrastructure wow. made that possible. So the Chinese approach is very much to build infrastructure in advance of need. Mm. 
That's very interesting. And do you think like that is just an intrinsic part of the way the state is run over there or is it just a different type of strategic thinking that culturally comes from China? I think there's a combination of both factors. There are a range of cultural factors in the way that people think and think in the long term. So there's a broader strategic approach to problems and problem solving. Uh, But then, of course, you've got state direction that takes place. And one of the advantages of a totalitarian state (laughs) is that some things can be done quickly without having to take too much account of um, community responses, perhaps, is the best way of putting it. So there's lots of pluses and minuses, but uh, it's certainly is a, a characteristic to look at longer-term uh, thinking, longer-term outcomes. Now, when you were a kid, what did you think you were going to be for your job? Oh, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> was we it just... fireman or, or anything like that? <laughs> no, life, life just continues to develop. You find opportunities and uh, you have to uh, – you, you take them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, some people, when the opportunity knocks, as they say, some people say, what's that noise? For goodness sake, stop. And other people say, just open the door. So that's part of what we did. Yeah. I mean, because I, I look back at your career, and I mean, it's quite a storied career in the finance space. Everyone knows here in Australia about Daryl Guppy. And, you know, you've had 20-plus years as a commentator, uh, CNBC, Asia Squawk Box, you're sort of a stalwart there. Uh, Guppy Traders has been around for 20 plus years as well. How did you get into all this? Like, how, what was your first entrance into the financial markets? Well, I really, I really blame Warren Buffett for that sort of thing. <laughs> so, I spent a long time working out bush, as we would say, in the Northern Territory and remote parts of the Northern Territory in the Gulf region, uh, building roads and various other bits and pieces. And we were working in, a, in an Aboriginal community, a place called El Prulum, which is out by the Queensland border on the Territory side. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking at the time, well, we need to do something about generating some longer-term income. So we had a few dollars in the bank. We took a break, came to Darwin, sat down during the, the wet season. I'm reading these magazines, which I think was... Um, Money magazine in those days, and talking about Warren Buffett and investment and so on. Ah, this is not a bad idea. <laughs> so when I went back to Wellpurulum, I managed eventually to set up an account using all the capital I had, which was two thousand dollars. And of course, brokers don't want to talk to you when you've got two thousand dollars. Give the money to us; we'll look after it for you. No thanks. This is something I want to do myself. So um, you know, Buffett's advice is to uh, to buy what you know. What do I know? I've worked in the mining industry. I've mined for gold underground. I've put bush roads through, uh, access roads for drilling rigs, so on and so forth. So Mount Isa was probably the nearest town. It's only about 350 kilometres away. So Mount Isa Mines, there's a good buy. So I bought Mount Isa Mines. Now, at the time, I'm living in an isolated community. bit hard for people down south to understand what isolated means. Means that the nearest city was, or nearest town, was 350 kilometres in one direction, and in the next direction it was 800 kilometres. There's no radio, there's no TV, there's no newspapers. A perfect environment for trading. So I bought Mount Isa Mines, and of course, as you do, you'd like to track what happens after you've bought this particular stock. So I did. I bought it at around 60 cents in those days, and over the following Weeks it went up to about a dollar twenty, and I felt really, really smart. 
And then it started to pull back and it came back and it actually fell back to 60 cents and I felt pretty stupid. So the next time it went up to 90 cents and a dollar, I sold it, took the profit. But of course, having given your money once, you tend to look at it again. So I kept an eye on it, bought it back again at 65 cents, sold it at a dollar 10. This introduced me to the concept, several concepts. The first concept was the concept of trading. The mm. second concept was the concept of charting. Now, remember, this is in the middle of nowhere, and I mean the middle of nowhere. We get one newspaper a week. That's where I'm getting my price from as to what's happening with the stock. Unfortunately, that newspaper was a week late. In other words, a week after it had been published. So what I created by hand was a lagged weekly chart, and I made my buy and sell decisions off that chart. So the first lesson, one, I'm instantly involved in technical analysis, not in fundamental analysis. I'm too far away from the news. Everyone else knows a lot more than I do. Long, long time before I get to hear that sort of news. So I can't rely on that. Two, in terms of technical analysis, I have developed particular approaches. What I had to understand was what the activity of other people in the market was telling me about what they already knew. Mm. And in some ways, it's, it's, it's like tracking, uh, tracking a beast. Out bush, you had no choice, no supermarkets. If you wanted to eat, you had to kill your own beef. Well, there's an awful lot of country between the kangaroos and the cows. Finding them is difficult. On the other hand, if you go down to the waterhole about five o'clock at night, you could be guaranteed that both cattle would come in, kangaroos would come in, you could get a feed. I never understood how the cows knew to come down to the waterhole about five o'clock. I never, ever saw a cow wearing a watch. But around five o'clock at night, there they would be. So that's the third thing about technical analysis and about trading and charting. I don't need to understand why something happens. But if I can see a repeated pattern of behaviour, then I can anticipate that behaviour and trade accordingly. Mm. So working in trading from a very isolated situation was very, very important. Technical analysis, charting and beha the behavioural aspects of charting and what's involved there, and then using that for trading decisions. Yeah, it, it, it's it's super interesting that that necessity that the fact that you were in that environment and you couldn't get that fundamental information until later on, just meant that you had to focus on this approach, and that's why you became, I guess, so prolific in this area. Because that was one of the questions: is why the interest? But it, it sort of seems obvious to me that you just had to, if you wanted to be successful successful in this area, that was going to be the way that you had to approach it and, and sort of had me thinking about what do you think that technical charting shows that fundamental analysis will never show or, you know, the people who are all 100% about fundamental analysis will never understand? Well, the important thing is that fundamental analysis depends on selecting a whole range of stories and trying to evaluate what, what's going on. There is an arrogance involved in fundamental analysis. And the arrogance is that me, as an individual trader, can know more about the company than their accountants. I know more about the company than their bookkeepers, and I can make better decisions than the company management. 
And that's an arrogance. That's not going to be the case at all. It's better, I believe, to sit back and say, yeah, there are people who know an awful amount, an awful lot about what's going on. Let them back their opinion with money. Let them put that into the market. And then I can see what's happening and I can take the appropriate action. Hmm. Now, that conversely, that's got me thinking about you know, where do you think technical charting fails? You know, you've seen it all over the last 20 plus years focusing on this area. Where do you think it often misses the mark or where do you think technical analysts can get arrogant? Oh, look, technical analysts can get very arrogant. There's no question (laughs) about it. What I argue or what I something like to say is my preferred technique is technical analysis, particular varieties of technical analysis, and that I often find that those conclusions are validated uh, subsequently by fundamental analysis or by developing use events and so on. Mm. But technical analysis, we speak of as if it's a single grouping. In fact, it's not. Technical analysis falls into a number of categories. My preference is for what's called chart analysis. Chart analysis mm. is where you take the underlying chart There is no alteration. There is no adjustment. You're simply looking at support and resistance levels, trend lines, patterns of behaviour. So a head and shoulders pattern, for instance, is not something that's a technical indicator. It's something that you see on an ordinary chart and anyone can do it if they have some facility in recognising patterns and not everyone can do that. So let's call that classic chart analysis. Then there's technical analysis, and it falls into two groups. There's a technical analysis that is basically a statistical type of analysis, and a moving average is a good example of that, RSI, stochastics, etc. So we're applying the techniques of statistics to understand price activity, and we're applying that analysis to essentially what is a data series. It's a data number series. Mm-hmm. And we're saying, well, you know, if... If there's a moving average crossover, 10, 30 day for argument's sake, then this tells us X, Y, and Z. And we use Guppy model for moving average in that sense, but what we're looking to use with the GMMA is to understand the behaviour of groups within the market. So we're using it as a behavioural basis. You can use it on a statistical basis, which is, for instance, what John Bollinger does to some extent with his RS, um, with Bollinger Bands, by saying once it moves to this level or to this extreme, then there's a higher probability that there'll be a return to the mean. So there you're divorcing um, the underlying characteristics of the market and looking purely at the number stream. Yeah. And then the third element of technical analysis let's call them Elliott Wave, GAN, et cetera, et cetera, uses this same number series to try and make predictive uh, statements about how the market might or might not behave. For chart analysis, classic chart analysis, for the statistical analysis applied to the market, they're all about probability outcomes. There's a higher probability of this outcome versus an alternative outcome. So it's a, it, it's a spectrum. Mm. And you mentioned before about the the guppy moving multiple average, which is obviously from uh, from the the well known business of guppy traders or guppytraders.com. We've actually interviewed a previous, um, I guess, contributor from the site, Karen Wong, who um, who sort of leads one of uh, the technical analyst associations in in Sydney. I know a lot of what you do in that organisation is financial market education and training. And this is one of the businesses that I speak about when I say that you've been in the business for 20 
plus years. So I guess I'd, I'm intrigued by how did you go from being that guy that was leaning into trading Mount Isa, learning technical analysis to running this organization which trains people today? I, I guess I'm curious as to how that all came about. When was the first moment you thought, I need to teach other people this stuff? All right, there's a couple of corrections that I probably need to do there. So yeah. I'm working by myself in the middle of uh, middle of the outback, and I moved to more civilized areas, Tennant Creek, mm-hmm. um, which most people would probably not consider to be civilized. So <laughs> I have no contact with the rest of the trading world in Australia. Um, all of my work was uh, self taught. That's perhaps one way of doing it. The only books that were available in those times were American books. The idea of trading virtually didn't exist in Australia. It wasn't until uh, quite a bit later that Chris Tate came along and started talking about options trading and so on. That was a revelation for, for many, many people. But there were no trading books in Australia. So you had to take what was happening in the States and this development that was taking place because of desktop computers became available. So the work that you could do on a computer was way beyond what you could do by hand. Um, the, mm-hmm. the charting software at the time, the best was uh, CompuTrack, which in those days was about $2,500 uh, for the package and it did less than what you'd get off a free website today. Uh, but that was a, a major breakthrough uh, because you're able, it enabled you to do a whole range of complex complications. Now, let me divert for a minute. It's a long way out bush to go to various locations. I used to travel and I used to do a lot of reading. And, of course, all of us are looking for this, like, what's the perfect indicator? What's going to get us into this situation as quickly as possible or before anybody else? One of the books that I got from the States from what was then the Traders Library, uh, which was the main supplier of trading books, was a book by Colby and Myers called An Encyclopedia of Technical Analysis. It is a particularly boring book, I can assure you. Its foundation is a single data set, which is the Dow, and it applies a whole range of indicators to that data set to see which ones are most effective. Now, I was unfortunate enough to be bogged in the bush for three days, and the only book that I had available to read was Colby and Myers, an encyclopedia of technical analysis. I would never have read it from cover to cover under any other circumstances. And the most amazing thing, the most interesting thing that came out of that particular experience, the conclusion from Colby and Myers is there is no single indicator that gives a definitive edge in analysis or in outcomes. Mm. So that's the first thing. There is no advantage from any particular technical analysis method. Now, once you accept that, you have a whole lot of time freed up to work out what does work. And what does work is not necessarily the trade you select or the method you use to select the trade, but the way you manage the trade, the way you manage the risk. That's what becomes important. Now, Uh to get back to your original question. So I'm working by myself. And it wasn't until I moved into uh, further up the, the track, as they say, in Catherine, that I began talking on... In those days, the old chat rooms, CompuServe, no one remember that these days, but I linked up with this fellow called Alexander Elder. So Elder, of course, is author of Trading for a Living. Elder came to Australia. He stayed with me for a couple of months, and we obviously talked about trading, and I just assumed that what I was doing was what everyone else was doing, but in fact, it wasn't the case. So 
I've always written a whole lot of material, so we started putting some notes together, and that became the first book, Share Trading. Now, at that point in time, the only other book that really focused on trading, as distinct from investment, was Chris Tate, and that was about options as distinct from shares. So Share Trading was the first book that looked at trading stocks, at trading equities in Australia, and it was phenomenally successful. And by that, I mean that the, uh, the printer, the publisher, printed enough to, uh, to last for what he thought would be 12 months. They sold out in a week, doubled the order they sold out in two weeks. So, you know, things changed. Jeez. And what I found yeah. then was that I had requests from Australian Stock Exchange and various other groups to go and talk to them on the basis of this book publication. And it's only then that I... Um, made any contact with the Australian Technical Analysts Association, ATAA, um, and of course, you know, I'm basically the only member of the Northern Territory, so there's a, an arms length association with ATTA. So with requests from ASX, ASX, of course, being a wonderful institution, uh, they said, yep, we'd love you to come and talk to us. Um, you can pay your own airfares and accommodation to get down there as well. So I thought to myself, well, you know, it's all very flattering to be uh, invited to, to speak at a variety of organisations, but if it's going to incur a cost, then I need to look at some ways in which I can cover those costs and turn that into part of a business as distinct from a charity, and things have developed from there. Uh-huh. So, okay, again, something by necessity that you just had to do. You wanted to get down there and you needed to find a way to pay for it, and hence... The idea there was to write books, to start educating people in, in some way. Well, I'm curious then, what does your day-to-day look like these days? Well, <laughs> obviously I do some training. I have open positions at the moment that I'm looking at in the background while we're talking here. Um, I do a bit of intraday trading from time to time. We do a bit of index trading intraday basis from time to time, sometimes longer. I've got longer-term open positions uh, sitting there that have been open for days or weeks or months, as the case may be. Um, But that doesn't really take most of my time. So I spend a lot of time, uh, a lot of time writing about a variety of issues. I have market analysis that goes through to to CNBC, to Shanghai Daily, to publications throughout Asia. Not so much in Australia these days because we have a regulatory environment that seems to have gone absolutely insane that can't distinguish between education and investment advice. So I do a lot of that. I do a lot of work, of course, as you understand, in relation to uh, to China and China trade and investment as well. Okay. Interesting. So you do, because that's one of the things I wanted to know was you do still trade on a, a day-to-day basis. Um that's very, very interesting. Oh, and it, yes, I mean, it, I'm, it, I'm doing a, uh, I'm doing a, a series of conference events uh, in China uh, next week. About 1,300, 1,500 people in the audience. Jeez. You've got to be able to, to be believable. You can't come up with stuff that's 5 and 10 and 12 years old. And I've seen a number of people who continue to do that. Yes, you're using the same techniques and methodologies, but it has to be applied to current markets. 
And you can do that in theory or you can do it in practice. And my preference always has been to do it in practice. So the examples that I use in all of my workshops and seminar works are real-time examples. These are trades that I've taken. This is what they're showing. This is how we dealt with it. This is how we've managed it. This is how we identified. These are the, the stop-loss target levels, et cetera, et cetera. Unless you are drawing from reality, then you're not an educator. You're an lecturer, which is a different sort of category. Yeah, you, you've got to be in the trenches. I think that, that it's good. I think people would enjoy hearing that from you as well because, yeah, you you would get people in this industry from time to time uh, that, like you said, would become those those lecturer types. Um, you, you've been in this for quite a while. I, I guess I'm curious as to what's been, what has been the most dramatic change in the last 20 or so years in your time uh, as an educator and what hasn't changed as well? All right, the most important change in terms of Australia is our inability to distinguish between investment advice and education. I sat on a subcommittee of Cabinet uh, at the turn of the century, 20 years, 18 years ago, and we put recommendations to, to government at the time as to how to distinguish between investment advice and education. And the key of that is that in an education delivery, the deliverer does not stand to benefit from any activity undertaken by the students. Whereas investment advice, as soon as you give investment advice, then you benefit from the activity undertaken by the people you're giving advice to, by commission payments, execution, or whatever the case may be. Unfortunately, the government of the day a, they accepted our recommendations. B, they went on and lost the, the next election and the government that followed declined to take up the recommendations that we'd given. So the result is that we now have a regulatory regime that cannot distinguish between investment advice and education. It treats education as if it's investment advice. The result is that you have conflicted education. The, give, the providers of education are primarily the providers of um, investment services, their brokerages, CFD providers, et cetera, et cetera, and there is an inherent conflict in that process. Mm. It's not objective. It is designed to develop clients, to service existing clients, to attract new clients. The result, AMP is the result. The result is the level of financial literacy in Australia is now so low that it's open season for anybody who has a good fraud scheme in operation. For example, when we have a strong Australian dollar, when the dollar was trading at $1.6, $1.7 to US, the advice that was given by the investment industry was that this was a great time to sell US investments. No, 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 no. It was a great time to buy. You had an advantage of the dollar exchange rate. Yeah. When the dollar is low, trading currently trading at 68, 69 cents, there are still investment advisors who are saying this is now the time to buy US markets. No, no, no. This is the time to sell US markets because on a dollar for dollar basis, you're getting more. Now, if yeah. you can't understand those simple concepts, you have licensed investment advisors telling you when the dollar AUD is low, it's time to buy US investments. And when the AUD is high, it's time to sell US investments then there is no financial literacy in this country. And that is a result of this failure to distinguish between education and investment advice. That's that's very interesting. That is something I'd never heard about because I've read deeply and listened to deeply about the Productivity Commission 
um, and obviously the Royal Commission as well. That that is really blowing my mind right now. I'd never thought about that. Have Have you seen anything around that in the Productivity Commission at all? No, no one's really spoken about it. No, as I said, once once government changed, we lost all of that uh, all of that momentum. Uh, and of course, the financial industry um, has a vested interest in saying, no, no, you know, only we can give you education about uh, <laughs> uh, about markets. And you know, there is a hard line uh, perspective in some offices of ASIC that suggest even writing books like share trading and guppy trading requires an investment advisor's license. Wow. I rest my case. <laughs> yeah. Geez, I'm going to look into that after this. I really, really want to have a look. Um, you, you mentioned China a few times. Uh, when I spoke to Karen, she obviously mentioned how much you would be traveling regularly. You do events in Asia, but particularly you get to mainland China quite a lot. You obviously have a bit of involvement there as a consultant really for investment from China to Australia, from Australia to China. You run events like the China Investment Forum with the Northern Territory government. Um, and I think the chief minister was a guest back in 2013. Uh, you've got the organization called Working with China, which is a consultancy that helps facilitate all of this work as well. Um, I, I think we've generally covered as as to your you know, initial escapades in China, seeing seeing what those uh, highways and freeways were like. What 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 interests you about China the most? China is the only expanding economy that's sitting pl- in, in place. There are, there are two things. One is its expansion, um, and it continues. The growth is uh, is substantial, and China's engagement uh, with the rest of the world will also continue. So you're looking at a whole range of integration projects between Shanghai, Shenzhen exchanges, UK exchanges, uh, world exchanges, Hong Kong, and so on. My original work in China was based around my international reputation uh, in terms of technical analysis. So I did a whole range of conferences there at invitation of Shanghai Stock Exchange, uh, Dalian Futures Exchange, and so on. Um, because I live in the Northern Territory, people were aware I was doing that. Um, government came to me for advice when they were first looking at uh, trying to attract Chinese investment. So gradually I became more involved in, let's call it those, political aspects of um, of the Australia-China relationship. But mm-hmm. the conferences I'm doing next week in China are all about trading and market and market analysis. The other thing with China, of course, is that it's a market that rivals the size of the US, but the levels of experience within the Chinese population in trading those markets was less. If they opened those markets immediately back in 2004, uh, 2005, then they would have been overwhelmed by more experienced traders on a global basis who knew the ins and outs of markets and how to analyse and so on. So that's part of the reason that I chose to, to do more work in China in the same way as I did in Australia at the time, and that is to show people that you can do this stuff yourself. You don't yeah. have to put your future in the hands of so-called experts. You can do it with a modicum of education, a bit of application, a bit of understanding. You can make a reasonable sort of living or a reasonable supplementary income from trading the financial markets. Now, China is a different environment for a whole range of reasons. But amongst those, information flows are more unreliable. Information itself is more unreliable. It's a market that isn't as 
transparent, particularly in those days, but even still, as it is, say, for instance, in Australia or the US, and that's a function of media and various other factors, which means that it is particularly compatible to the techniques of technical analysis. Mm-hmm. The fundamental analytics don't as apply as effectively in a Chinese situation as they do outside of China. So how do you trade the market? We know that there's more informed trading taking place. Um, people do know what's going on. They're trading, you get caught, et cetera, et cetera. So technical analysis and technical analysis techniques provide the analytical and trading advantage in the China market to a greater extent than they do in, say, markets in Singapore or markets in Australia. So it really is a test of the efficacy of technical analysis. And it turns out that technical analysis does give you the competitive edge in that environment. And it gives you a competitive edge in environments outside of that where more fundamental information is available. And the challenge in the Australian market, the Singapore market, is to ignore the news feeds and the analysis and the fundamental material that's coming through and to focus on what the technical analysis is telling you. It's a very good point there about that information flow and how technical analysis is, you know, can be the prime primary form of analysis in that market. I found a funny video the other day. It was showing how Google Maps are off just in China, again, because of that informational flow. And I think that just really underscores that point. You know, if you're looking at a Google Map, it's it's never perfect. It's always just a little bit off in its placement. I think... I think that point in and of itself really highlights the value that probably technical analysis can provide in that market. And uh, another thing I was thinking about is, you know, you've you've been there, you've done these conferences, you've helped businesses go into the Chinese market. I I was listening the other day to sort of a talk from a, a legendary diplomat. He was an ambassador from America to China and he was talking about cultural differences a lot of the time around business um, you know, like the Chinese very much seem to value technology and R&D these days. Um, and and I, was, I guess I was just curious from your own perspective, what do you think is sort of the biggest mistakes made by businesses entering China and the Chinese market? Their understanding of China is 20 to 30 years out of date. That's the simple <laughs> biggest mistake. I'm taking a colleague to, uh, uh, to China uh, next week. And I'm sure that he will be gobsmacked by what he sees. Our images, our understanding of what China is, 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 is conflicted. Consider the current situation. On the one hand, we argue that China can't develop anything because they have to copy it from everyone else. They're a nation of thieves and copycats. That's one argument that's applied. Technological transfer, et cetera, et cetera. But simultaneously, on the other hand, we say, China is so advanced that we've got to stop them because we can't compete with them on an even field. They're so such leaders in 5G and artificial intelligence, we've really got to pull them back. And that's part of what the, the, the reasoning is behind uh, Trump's attacks on Huawei and, and, and other Chinese companies. So we hold these simultaneous contradictory views. Which one's true? Yeah. Well, maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Not too sure. I mean... I'm a little bit older than you are, I'm guessing. I can remember the days when anything that came from Japan was generally called Jap crap because it was purely 
copycat material. But over time, you look at it and you would buy a Japanese car, for instance, in preference to an Australian-produced car because it was so advanced. Mm. You go back to the publishing industry, which is one of my favourites. The American publishing industry was founded by Benjamin Franklin. And what Benjamin Franklin would do, he would go to England, he would buy up a whole lot of books and take them back to the States and reprint them without paying any copyright. It was just pure intellectual copyright theft. (laughs) And major American publishing companies are founded on this tradition. Once they started producing their own material, uh, Mark Twain, et cetera, et cetera, they had something to protect, then they suddenly discovered the importance of copyright. The same happened with Japan. After the war, yeah, copyright wasn't a big problem, but once they started producing their own stuff, stopped copying, then copyright became important. And we're seeing this change taking place in China at the moment. There are more patents filed in China uh, than there are currently filed on a yearly basis in the US. And China now has its own intellectual property to protect and it increasingly recognises the rights of intellectual property from other people in exactly the same way. It's a developmental thing. Yeah, I, I think China started to realise as well where the advantage of becoming, or where the focus of becoming the next superpower should be. Or instead of, you know, cheap manufacturing, it's about high value manufacturing research technology. And I think to your point about people thinking China is 30 years back, it, you know, when you go to places like Shenzhen, you really get that perspective as to how advanced they they really are and you know just on the point of trump how do you see this whole trade war thing playing out over the next i don't know year or so okay i'll answer that in a second let me just go back for a second china economy economic development depends upon an expanded middle class and we hear that ad nauseum from our uh, government spokesman how do you create an expanding middle class well one of the things you do which they did four years ago is they mandated a five percent annual increase in basic wage levels for the next five years. Low-cost manufacturing, which is what China used to be famous for, has now shifted to Laos, to Cambodia, to Vietnam, to Bangladesh, and to Indonesia to some extent. So our concept of China as a low-cost production point is quite wrong. That's part of the way that that China is changing, and Shenzhen is a good example of that in terms of its high-tech industries. Trade wars? The trade wars have major impacts on our economy and on our investment thinking. We tend to think that it's purely between China and America. That's not correct. The collateral damage is much, much wider. And there are two parts of that. Take the Huawei situation at the moment. So we now have companies within the US saying we won't supply parts to Huawei because it's against US sanctions. We have companies in Japan and the UK saying the same sorts of things. So what happens when President Trump turns around and says the supply of iron ore to China is a strategic threat to America and it has to stop? Yeah. Now, that's not beyond the bounds of possibility. We've already been shown that the supply of, um, of cars from Europe into America is a strategic threat and the first step is extra tariffs being applied to that. I was talking to the... Um, Australian ambassador in Washington uh, a couple of days ago and 
commenting to her that you know, part of our approach in Australia is to say, look, we don't care what happens to the rest of the world. We've got a good working relationship with President Trump at the moment. Uh, therefore, as long as we're excluded from tariffs on steel, then we don't we don't really care if other people get hit with the same sorts of tariffs. That's not good thinking because what is happening is that's undermining the global trade order. Now, WTO is not perfect, but it's the best thing we've got at this point in time. It gives us stability and a sense of regulatory um, certainty that takes place. So Trump is doing two things. First of all, he's ignoring it, and secondly, he's sabotaging it. So World Trade Organization disputes are settled by an appellate court, and there must be three judges who sit in each of those appellate courts to hear the uh, hear the appeals. Resignations are due. Trump needs to approve the nominations of additional appellate judges. It's due to finalise for the next week or two. He refuses to do that, which means there will only be two appellate judges left, which means that all WTO cases can't be heard under the rules. Now, either we support the rules, and that benefits a whole range of Australian industry, or we allow those rules to collapse, and with it collapses the certainty that we rely on as an export country to be able to power our economy. That's yeah. fairly significant threats to us. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're 100% right on that because geopolitically as a nation, as an island nation, we've always depended on world trade and free and open global trade is paramount to our ability to survive, really. And we're, we are in a real tricky scenario because we've got the world's maritime superpower, which protects that trade, and then we've got uh, our the world's economic superpower, um, which you know, creates that trade. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a weird scenario to be in. Um, I, I'm realizing we're starting to, to hit on time. We've, we've already gone over the 40 minutes I've, I've grabbed from you. So I want to finish off with some short, fast questions, uh, some rapid fire questions. It doesn't mean there'll be short answers. but <laughs> <laughs> um, what, is, what does your morning routine look like? I check the, check the news feeds, um, write a few bits of notes for a variety of publications or columns or whatever. Markets open at 10 o'clock in Australia. They open at 11.30 territory time in China and Singapore. Um, I keep those running in the background to see what's, uh, what's happening. Yeah, well, go for a bit, of a, a bit of a walk or a jog or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's about lifestyle. You're not stuck in front of a screen all day. I do tend to be in front of screens for various reasons, but not necessarily for trading and so on. Um, that's when I'm in Australia. When I'm travelling, it's a totally different setup. It depends on what my flight times are and what engagements I have and meetings I have and so on. Yeah. And your evening routine, how do you sort of decompress at night? What do you get up to? I read for two or three hours. Okay. Very nice. Um, Daryl, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh as I said, I think a lot of people have learnt from you over the years um, and I think it's it's very intriguing to hear how you got there and your thoughts on that time and uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G O M A R K E T S. Until next time, thanks for listening.